You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, and I am the director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Today, we are speaking with Megan Butchart. She is a archival intern at Kelowna Public Archives in Canada. She is a recent graduate of the University of Alberta with a Master's of Arts in English, and she also works for Spoken Web Audio Digitization Project. During her time at the University of Alberta, her thesis was entitled... The Literary Activism of Lillian E. Smith and Paula Snelling's Little Magazine, South Today, or Pseudopodia, or North Georgia Review. So today we're going to talk to her about her thesis, about getting involved with Lillian Smith, and just about that kind of moment between 1936 and 1945 when Paula and Lillian were publishing this journal on Screamer Mountain in Clayton, Georgia. So thank you for joining us today, Megan. Thank you so much for having me on, Matthew. Yeah, I apologize for having you on so early of being over there in British Columbia, but time zones <laughs> no are not worries. the are not the best of friends sometimes. So getting started, you know, your master's thesis is on Lillian Smith and Paula. And I mean, that's mm-hmm. important, I think, to note. So yeah. I guess the question, you know, really is how did you come to learn about them? How did you come to learn about the magazine and what made you interested in pursuing this project? Yeah, um, I, I really found Lillian Smith um, and South Today completely by accident. So, um, <laughs> as you mentioned, yeah, I do live in Western Canada. Um, and so Lillian Smith is not taught here, uh, which is not entirely surprising. But uh, in the sort of limited amount of Southern literature we do study, she's not um, not studied at all. We pretty much just do like Faulkner. And <laughs> so so uh, I was going to ask yeah. that. So you said that in the Southern literature you study, so you do Faulkner and Southern lit and who else do y'all do? Um, sometimes Carson McCullers, mm-hmm. Audrey O'Connor. Um, those are some of the, the typical ones. Yeah. You mentioned that because it's surprising. I'm not shocked by O'Connor. I'm almost shocked mm-hmm. by McCullers, but the fact mm-hmm. that McCullers and Lillian, of course, knew each other and corresponded. And then yeah. O'Connor's like right down the road here. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Oh, neat. Yeah. Um, so I never, you know, really came across Lillian in my education. But when I was doing my undergrad, I um, had been taking a course and writing a term paper on like the correspondence between women writers in the early 20th century. And through that, I somehow found um, Margaret Rose Gladney's edited collection of Lillian's letters, uh, How Am I to Be Heard, which um, is just a wonderful collection. And that really introduced me to her writing, which is so beautiful and so compelling. Um, and then also, uh, you know, I was just completely captured by um, her life story as, you know, a queer woman writing in the South um, who, you know, was working with the camp. Um, and of course, then I, you know, learned that they were publishing a little magazine too. So um, that's really how I came across Lillian and her work. Um, and, you know, of course, also found the magazine then through uh, Piedmont University, um, the digitized editions. So, right. so we so we have yeah. the digitized editions of the whole 
the whole run from Pseudopodia, South Today, and North Georgia Review available on our website. And just a side note, too, the University of Georgia actually received a grant, and they've already started posting stuff up, of Lillian's correspondence. So <laughs> that's actually online through the Georgia Digital Archives, I think. And I love Rose's book, How Am I to Be Heard? But the one thing I don't like about Rose's book is the fact that it only has her outgoing letters. We don't get the incoming. And the good thing about the UGA archive is that they actually are uploading the incoming too. So you get a fuller view. And I think they may be digitizing some of the things from the University of Florida. Yeah, I believe they are both digitizing things, which is incredible. Came a little late, but. (laughs) And adding to that, we won't get into this, but we were actually working on digitizing records. We found a course at the camp too, where we have Paula reading a piece that she wrote in South today. We have the campers performing plays that are published in South today. We have the bus eye stories, which is this mythological creature that comes down and plays pranks on the girls and also kind of teaches them lessons with his family. We have those types of stories and we have like, records of their Rosenwald fun trip. So we have, there's a record of an event they attended in Talladega at the HBCU in Talladega, Alabama. So, I mean, it's an amazing treasure trove of things for scholars such as you um, who work in archives and for others too. And those will be available at some point. So you found them and I'm assuming you found Paula through that as well, right? So what made you interested in, after you looked at the journal, what kind of made you interested in studying it? Um. I guess I've always just been really fascinated by little magazines um, and just kind of the communities that they create around them. Um, And so I think, you know, that was, that was a huge interest. Um, You you also mentioned Paula and like what interests me about Paula. And I feel like Paula does not get recognized enough Mm -hmm. for her role in South Today and her role in Lillian's life. And um, as a, as a writer and like, um, you know, in her own right as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was something I was really like, I paid a lot of attention to in the thesis about how, um, you know, Paula was so involved, you know, a a lot of times more behind the scenes. um, But that's like labor that's gone really undervalued, I feel a lot in, you know, when we just look at Lillian's work. Um, So yeah, that's just one little brief point, because I know you mentioned uh, that I also pay, you know, a lot of attention to Paula. Well, I think, and, and from my understanding is, if you look at their writing, I mean, definitely if you look at their writing differently, they are different styles. Mm-hmm. They are very distinct and different. And Paula does most of the book reviews in there. Like she yeah. reviews Faulkner's books. I think I think mm-hmm. Lillian reviewed Gone with the Wind. But I mean, if you look at the book reviews, it's typically Paula or outside people, right? Mm-hmm. And also, from what I understand, I could be wrong about this because this is still stuff that I want to look into, too. And I do think that Paula is very un- under under-recognized is the fact that she consciously, I think, took a backseat to Lillian. Hmm, Um, I think that was part of their relationship. I could be wrong about that. But there were also the things, too, because one of the reasons they started the journal was, of course, because of her accident, her horse riding Mm -hmm. accident. And they they wanted to bring basically people to them. And also, of course, Lillian was dealing with her mother's um, illness and all that stuff, too. But you Mm -hmm. mentioned the, the not recognized. And just a side note. In those recordings and at the camp, I think that there needs to be a broader discussion of women like Paula, mm-hmm. of um, little sisters, Esther, who was the yeah. theater director at the camp and who worked at Western Maryland and was 
loved by the theater department there. Um, Annie Laurie, who worked in Memphis in education, taught sixth grade, worked at the camp, I think, in the kitchen as a dietitian, And then, of course, Frank and all the stuff that mm-hmm. he did. So I think the family, that family group, and even Annie Laurie's daughter, who went to Northwestern and was in, I forget, she was in a medical field and went to Northwestern and Duke and was there's a wide range that it's not just Lillian. It's just, it's a wider span. So yeah, absolutely. I guess the question is you, you pay attention to Paula. What do you, what do you look at with Paula? Um, yeah. I mean, as you or said, what are your was, thoughts? I mean, yeah. So actually like Lillian and Paula contributed fairly equally to the magazine. Um, collectively, they both contributed just under 50% of the content actually, which is quite, quite a lot <laughs> it's basically um, their magazine it's their writing yeah it is yeah it is definitely um their little baby right so um so I think you know that's interesting uh Lillian does do more of the creative content often whereas Paula does more of the um critical sort of content mm-hmm. um yeah it it's interesting even the times that they kind of collaborate on articles um I feel like when you say uh, politics, a bit of a backseat, I do feel like Lillian's writing comes out more. In do, those. do you do you have an example of the collaboration? Because I was going to ask that because there are a lot yeah. of pieces where there's no author name. So I'm assuming that's where they're collaborating. Yeah. Like buying I mean, a I new guess... world with old Confederate bills, I think, is one of those. I think so. I could quickly check because I've kind of forgotten. But I know a lot of their editorials are generally co-written, um, although like you often hear Lillian's Lillian style come through a lot but um yeah I'm trying to think of a example I can't actually remember if buying an old um an old world of new confederate bills is co-authored because I think of that so much as Lillian to be honest (laughs) well I I do too I'm looking it's on page 105 of your is where the first mention is and you you don't mention yeah it says that it's written by Smith and that's the one yeah. that got the issue banned and got the the Georgia Bureau of Investigation yeah. on her. Yeah. It is a wonderful essay, by the way. It's, yeah. Actually, reading that one today particularly, I feel like it's so, like, oh, it yeah. feels like it could have been written yesterday. Reading that one in um, The White Christian and His Conscience. It's just, yeah. it's like reading Baldwin. All yeah. of those feel like they could be done today. And then... You mm-hmm. mentioned right below that address to intelligent white Southerners, which I think that was co-written. Am I right about that? Yeah, I, or, I kind of like. I'm trying I, to remember here. How did you determine which ones were solo written and which ones were co-written? Um, sometimes it mentions both their names. Um, in terms of editorials, they often use "we," um, which is kind of a construct. It's kind of like just a way to to talk in an editorial. But I guess more generally, like if it is just authored by one of them, it will say that. Um, and so there are like a few that are kind of um, either explicitly, you know, con- contributions by both or um, or like are not listed in such a way that like it is the editors talking. Yeah. So there's actually I found this up at the camp. There's multiple copies of it. It's the. Memphis State University, it's out of there. This was published in the 70s. It's a bulletin devoted to bibliography and original source material. And it's actually Mm -hmm. a book 
with a bibliography of Lillian Smith at the time, and Paula writes the foreword. And even in the foreword, she kind of takes a back seat a little bit to her. But there is a section in here, I thought, I'm kind of flipping through it. I thought there was a section actually with Paula too, but I could be wrong. I can look on it, look at it while mm. we're kind of talking. But it's, okay. it's massive how big this is. It's like, you know, 40 pages, 50 pages of just Lillian's work. Right. Yeah. Well, and I guess this is actually a really important part about Paula is like her role in um, Lillian's archive, right? Right. <laughs> in like collecting Lillian's archive and being almost like an archivist for for that collection. Um, because from what I understand, like some of the, some of Lillian's archive was donated like by them both while she was alive. But I think also a significant portion was donated after Lillian's death. Um, so it's kind of interesting, I guess, in that sense, you know, how um, Paula was kind of almost involved in like Lillian's legacy in that sense. So, and Lily, and she was very much involved too, of course, with, with the editorial work, because I think that didn't Lillian mm -hmm. say that yes. Paula was kind of not her muse, but basically the person that she would go to, to actually, you know, read my work. Here, here it is mm -hmm. on page 29. Mm -hmm. Um Primary sources, the published works of Paula Snelling, and this is actually in the the journal. And this runs for, you know, five pages. And then she also has other publications, too. I forgot about this one. There's an issue of, which one is it? Because she has, she has publications in the New Republic. Um, she has a publication... Trying to find yeah. it because I don't see it in here. Maybe where is it? The new leader. And it's yeah. one part of the South. Actually, no, it's a later one. But it's a it's a journal. And what's fascinating about it, maybe the progressive. <laughs> Lillian has an article in there. Paula has an article in there. And it's the first appearance of James Baldwin's letter to my nephew. When my oh. when my dungeon when when um the, the letter to his nephew, right? Right. There's okay. a piece by Martin Luther King Jr. in there. It's like a who's who and Lillian yeah. and Paula are right there next to them. And Paula is prominent. Yeah. They're talking about the South and its art. Yeah. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. And that's right. You know, it is important, I think, to recognize her as having kind of a bit of a writing career independent of Lillian as well. Right. Yeah. And and having a voice, having a voice co-joined with Lillian, I guess we should say. Too. Yeah. True. Yeah. Because we don't know the exact how much they work together she edited all that stuff too but yeah, yeah. i'm sure she had a yeah, large hand in it mm -hmm. yeah i think you're absolutely right about like paula being an editor you know also being very involved in a lot of the kind of office type work behind so today behind the scenes um, so well that leads me to another question yeah mm -hmm. so do you write about the other individuals involved like betty tipton yeah, I do. Well. So, yes. so can you talk about her a little bit? Because she's the one who actually got the GBI on him, I think, right? Yeah, <laughs> poor Betty. So, yeah, <laughs> but she was yeah. she was married to a professor at Georgia Tech, right? Yes, James Tipton. Okay, so can, um, can you? So, for people who don't know, can you talk about Betty and James a little bit, and specifically Betty yeah. and her role? So, yeah, from what I understand, they were pretty close friends of um, Lillian and Paula, and um, basically. Um, they were going to kind of help them um, basically. Okay. So I need to go back a little bit. So what happened was um, the postmistress of Clayton, Georgia, um, Carrie Cannon, I believe her name was, she 
uh, took some objections to basically giving uh, South Today a second class mailing permit, um, which is kind of like what they needed to, uh, you know, remain sort of uh, right. economically viable. Um, and so, you know, Lillian had a lot of troubles getting that. And so they ended up kind of giving up on that and going to Atlanta to send the magazines out of and Atlanta. That, and I found, FYI, <laughs> under the common room, there was mm-hmm. South Today stationery and there's a there's a letter to the post or CC copy letter to the postmaster general, I think in DC about that. Oh, no way. Okay. That's cool. <laughs> I can, I can send it to you later. Just remind me. I got I'd love to see that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so, you know, they were going to do all the wrapping and the shipping out of Atlanta and, um, James and, uh, Betty Tipton were going to help them out with that. But basically James got conscripted into world war II and it was kind of left to Betty who hadn't had a lot of experience, I guess, with, with shipping and, and wrapping and, she basically uh, gave the the magazines to a commercial rapper that ended up having close ties to the KKK and <laughs> so and so it was a rapper. Too. It wasn't a printer. No, they were. I believe the rappers. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I thought it was a um, printer, so so that helps. Thank you. So yeah, uh, which actually I, I've always been curious, like if Lillian and Paula did the rapping themselves. I don't know if you know, but I don't. I have no clue. This. Yeah. Anyway, but uh, so that happened, and then yes. Um, basically it got very escalated very quickly and the police got involved and then the georgia bureau of investigation and even uh the fbi as well right. so, and that's and that's i yeah. think that's when actually the fbi file starts on her i think the first entry is it, in december yes. 43 it is in yeah. the fbi i've never seen the gbi file but the the fbi file we have yeah. a podcast with will brantley who's written about her fbi file and he's he's yes. he, we talk about kind of that but mm-hmm. um I think what's interesting about that too is that issue. She says that was the most inflammatory issue we had because it's it's where you find buying a new war with old Confederate bills. That's it where is. that essay is. Mm-hmm. It's also where you find address to intelligent white Southerners, right? I believe so. so yeah, and that's the yeah, summer. That's very... the winter forty two, forty three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then yeah, immediately, so... go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. <laughs> you go ahead. I was going to say, Im- immediately following that, because the FBI file starts in December 43, mm-hmm. Strange Fruit comes out in February 44, and then in Detroit yeah. and then Boston, the FBI is is looking into her, right? So it yeah. kind of ramps up after that. It does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, of course, uh, the reason, I guess, that in, at the end of the day, like the magazine was allowed to go through um, is because, you know, Lillian had a lot of connections to people and high places as well right so um including uh first lady eleanor roosevelt mm-hmm. so that doesn't hurt either <laughs> so can yeah. you talk about you talk about the the friends in high places which i think eleanor did help mm-hmm. get that one get the even the magazine through and she did get the book through um after that right. ban mm-hmm. can you talk about some of the contributors and how they kind of yeah. got some of these contributors because some of the contributors they have are very big names even from the beginning mm-hmm. yeah um, I guess it's kind of interesting how like the contributor ship developed, um, cause originally it very much starts out kind of as people they knew who were local to them. Um, like yeah. a 20 page, <laughs> basically kind of like print and it turns into like a hundred, 200 page magazine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I think they really struggled at least in the early years to actually get content that kind of fit with their mandate. Um, cause they of course were basically challenging the sort of like, um, I don't know, romanticized view of the South, right? 
Um, and so that was, I think, initially a, tr um, a bit of a, a problem. And they tried things like um, sort of like essay contests mm -hmm. and all sorts of things. You can come stay a weekend with us up at the camp. Yeah, exactly. Because they couldn't pay contributors, right? right? So, um, yeah, so it kind of started out like that. But of course, yeah, they were they were really big names um, by the end. I mean, like a few that stick out. I mean, there's Polly Murray, of course, with, you know, Dark Testament was first published in South Today. And and they were the first ones to actually pay her for her work, she mentioned. Yeah, and I believe actually dollars. that's the only time they paid anyone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, talking about that, that leads me to another question. I want to get back to the contributors, <laughs> but I'm wondering if Paula had an influence on Polly too, because I know that Lillian did. From what I understand, Lillian read the first few chapters of Proud Shoes and provided commentary. So I'm wondering if Paula oh. did too. Maybe. Not a thing about it. Anyways. Yeah. So, so who were some other contributors that kind of stood out to you? Um, just thinking here. There's Sterling Brown. Mm -hmm. Um, let's see. They uh, reprint some Jacob Lawrence paintings. Oh yes, and those are wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Um W.B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. I believe, does a review. Um, let me think. I'd have to look. I don't remember if Walter White writes in there or not. W.J. I... Cash does. Yes, like... yeah. And I believe they actually printed, um, was it the, like a chapter from The Mind of the South? I think they did before it, it came out. Published? And that was like yeah. one of the first issues. It was, yeah. So that's pretty, actually, that's pretty big right from the beginning. <laughs> I, I don't think they had Thomas Wolfe. I remember they had a review of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think they did like an author profile. Of them. Right. So the, they um, have like huge names. And mm -hmm. people have pointed out that this kind of endeavor and them mm -hmm. getting, and of course, they were having Rosenwald, you know, fellowships, things like this, too. I kind of see this as her kind of not necessarily her awakening to yeah. social justice, and civil rights, but I see it as really percolating and helping her within her process because one of the questions that i have because you've looked at these i've read a lot of them but i have not read them through to through and i'm not sure if you did for your thesis or not like read all of yeah. them yeah did you read all of them for your i thesis? did yeah. yeah so so you can probably speak to this but one of the things like we said it starts off really thin and then grows yeah and then this is gonna lead to another question about readership but okay did you notice a shift in the journal from early to later? Because early seems very much more literary focused. They were yeah, focusing on, on like Gone with the Wind and Faulkner and responding to them and this. And then it takes on kind of a different thing, kind of the late 30s, early 40s till the end in 45. Yeah, absolutely. So can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I can. Yeah. Um, I think this is like such an interesting part about the magazine. And I I kind of actually think of the three names as being like three mm -hmm. eras. Um, I think that's like a helpful way to think so, of it. So can, like, can you go through the names real quick? Like sure. They so, so Pseudopodia is the first one. I think it was just four issues of that printed. Um, and yeah, as you say, like it was very literary. It was very much they're kind of like quintessential little magazine. It's publishing a lot of creative content and really trying to like push the boundaries of, of that, of literature. Um, but then, you know, I think because of their struggles with content and finding like appropriate content, you know, they say like they receive a lot of like, you know, basically kind of imitations of Gone with the Wind, right? Yeah. And so I see like North Georgia Review as being more thinking like critically about that. Like, why do we, why are we receiving so much of that literature? Why is it so popular? Um, and they take a real like sociological turn in the 40s, which 
I mean, I kind of connect this also to things like Phylon, which were being published around, you know, at the same time. When did Phylon start? Was it start in the 30s? 1940. Okay. Yeah. And and, um, and even before that, Contempo, which I had no clue about until I talked to somebody mm-hmm. out of, you know, University of North Carolina. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Phylon's so, out of Clark Atlanta. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which was first edited by W.B. Du Bois. Um, anyway, yeah. And so I think, you know, North Georgia Review is more interested in in kind of the critical aspect and like more sociological content. It's also where you start seeing like really interesting things like um, like reader forums and the mm-hmm. quiz contests. And like you're starting to see more reader engagement. Um, it's becoming more of a community, like a wider community. Well, sort of I think project. The, the reader engagement, I think, is interesting because mm-hmm. where the issue that Dark Testament was published in, I just taught that issue this semester, is the church and men's needs. And that yeah. like half of that issue is a survey they sent out questions about the church during this time in regards to segregation and Jim Crow. Right. Yeah. And even the war. There's even one issue where they're talking about democracy in the war, where right. it's just like yeah. responses. Yeah. 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 And it's kind of like an interesting you know, they're like, we need like a two-way radio set. Like we need to be able to hear more people's perspectives. And um, it's a message it's, it's board nice. today. Because it's a very like, it makes the magazine not so top down, you know, um, gives readers a chance to respond. And that's really interesting I, as part of their project, right? That's a really good, that's a really good point. Because when I was thinking about this, it was like, it's a, it's a modern day message board. Mm-hmm. They're the moderators. They're of course choosing what to goes in and what goes what doesn't go in. Absolutely. Like for example, Immediate. the um yeah. the author of Strange Fruit responds to her mail, right? That she's yeah. choosing what to put in and what not to put in. But what's mm-hmm. really interesting about that, what you said is it's not a top-down. So it is really more democratic within kind of their representation, their presentation. They're like, this isn't just mm-hmm. us, this is across the board. And yeah. now that I'm thinking about that, part of that is part of that focus of the magazine of them pushing back against the narrative of the South. Absolutely. And they're, yeah. they're, and they're drawing nationally, like in the church and men's needs, they had somebody from Bastrop, Louisiana, which is near where I went to college and near where I grew up. I'm like, Oh, oh really? yeah. and this guy seemed really kind of progressive for the time. <laughs> this is like 40 to like, Oh, so they're yeah. showing actually that, that, that they are not alone within this, right. That they are part of a larger Absolutely. group. Absolutely. Which is something like, um, they were really interested in was like, you know, creating kind of like localized change, but like on a mass level, right? Um, and so I think it's so fascinating, kind of to see all these little pockets, you know, of uh, of people who are, you know, interested in changing the South at that time. That's... I've actually I've mapped it. If you <laughs> so, if so you can you talk about? That. So what do you mean you mapped it? I, I know you looked at the readership. Yeah. Is that part of the readership discussion too? Yeah. Part so of the can you talk about that a little bit? Because because you did a. Yeah. I know you didn't get all the subscribers, but you, no. you were able to find a lot and we can talk about that. And yeah. I guess the side question I have that I always tell people too, because Lillian mentions it. What was, do you know the final subscription numbers? I've heard um, 10,000. Okay. Yeah. This is, is a, that, this that is seems exaggerated because I see a lot of reprints, but that's what I say because that's what she said. So, yeah, I think it's probably closer to 5,000. Okay. That's um, still a lot. It, which is a ton actually for a little magazine it's more than like the southern review or <laughs> the canyon review yeah. like we need to remember for that but um yeah i think it's closer to five thousand just based on like the how many copies they've ordered from printers okay um so i don't actually know where the ten thousand number comes from i mean we know that the pamphlets were selling like 
in tens to hundreds of thousands, which is also impressive. And they were sending, I have a list of some things. They were sending like multiple copies to libraries. And they so were. To and university libraries who I guess yeah. subscribe to them. Yes. Um, yeah, there were like, I think around 250 libraries that subscribed. And, and so and, then and, when we think about how many readers were reading those, I mean, at the end of the day, it maybe is actually closer to 10,000. But well, the, I was about to say, the, the list I had was, it was like full of HBCUs. They're like going to, they're is, like going yeah. to Howard and everywhere like that. And then they're going, you know, elsewhere. Yeah. So I, think, I think that's important too, but, but go ahead. Absolutely. So what about the readership? What did you kind of determine or figure out within your research? And how did you go right. about even determining the readership? <laughs> right. So yeah, I, I ended up kind of just like, I was interested in sort of tracking like who was reading South today? What are the sort of demographics of the readership? So, um, you know, we were just talking about the reader forums. So I, I went through and I um, sort of looked up all those people and, and figured out where they were located. But then I also did this for um, the subscribership. So it turns out UGA has um, like 2,847 subscriber cards from South Today for 1944, um, which is just like incredible, an incredible yeah. find. <laughs> I, you know, I don't know another little magazine that has these records still, right? So um, yeah, I just like went through... Um, put everyone into a spreadsheet. And then I looked everyone up on Ancestry to try to find, um, you know, who these people were. And, um, you know, some people are harder to find than others. And because, you know, addresses change or, you know, they gave initials or all sorts of things. But yeah, in the end, we I get kind of a profile of, of what the subscribership looked like. So the first thing I'll maybe say is that um, they were like hugely distributed across the United States which actually kind of surprised me because I, I expected most to be located in the South, but um, there were subscribers, you know, throughout the South, but also, um, you know, along the East Coast, in the Midwest, also along the West Coast, um, even a few, you know, in Canada, Australia, England, <laughs> Brazil, um, yeah, all over, right? So yeah, it's fascinating sort of how it traveled. Um, and you know, I think there's lots we can think about, like, how did it travel? And I, I think this is where readers are so important in circulating the magazine. Um, something I did find is that 24% of um, subscribers were recipients of a gift subscription, which was something that Lillian and Paulo kind of implemented. Mm -hmm. I kind of, I forget when, but it was basically an effort to kind of increase circulation, um, get the magazine some more funds, have people kind of contribute more in that aspect of the magazine. Um, and so, you know, that's a pretty like significant um, amount of people who, you know, were basically kind of given a subscription by another subscriber. Um, you're which talk is how, yeah. You're talking about the readership. And one thing it reminds me of is um, we had a podcast episode with Melanie Morrison, who's, mm -hmm. I forget exactly, I think she's up in Michigan. But during that episode, she says that my parents met over Lillian Smith. Oh, and really? her mom went to the camp like they would have groups up there of course for the weekends mm -hmm. i think they i think her mom was from alabama maybe from georgia but they the, as a student during college they went to the camp in like the late 30s mm -hmm. later when her mom met her dad they bonded over lillian because her dad was reading the magazine mm -hmm. and they're reading the magazine so wow. i don't know if you had a subscription <laughs> or not or whatever but yeah. just even kind of like that, I thought that was like a fascinating story that they knew, they both knew who Lillian was, one from actually yeah. being here and going there, but the other from being like, 
I have been reading her magazine and Eleanor Roosevelt yeah. you know, proclaims that it's one of the the best things to come out of the South and Walter White praises. I mean, it's, it's all over. And even in the archives, I found things, this is the digitized stuff at UGA. I think it's just mm-hmm. UGA stuff, or I found it somewhere. She was writing back and forth with Walter White, NAACP supported. Yeah. They, they donated money when they were struggling to support it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so what did you kind of incredible. find out about the, about not just the, the geographical layout of mm-hmm. everybody, but what did you kind of find out about race and gender and all of that and age? Right. Yeah. So um, maybe I'll just quickly kind of look at my notes here because it's a lot of numbers. (laughs) Um, So I guess the first thing is that um, there were more women than men subscribers, which is kind of what you'd maybe expect. Mm -hmm. Um, There were also, I believe, more um, like not married women than married women, whereas more married men than not married men. Um, in terms of race, uh, it was primarily white. I think it was like around um, 70% of the subscribership was white, around 30% were black, um, approximately. And that um, is, their, that is, is quite, of course, their audience. Which is their audience. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of interesting. Um, it was an interracial periodical, but also like one very focused on like unpacking whiteness as a con as a construct and um so it is it is interesting that there was such a large percentage of, of black readership too um but yeah i don't know so that's kind of interesting um one thing like when i compared um like gender and race so sort of like an intersectional approach um i found that uh it was mostly white women who were reading um and then white men, and then black men, and then black women, um, which is kind of interesting. And I wonder if this actually has something to do with the fact that there were like a shocking, like lack of black women who wrote for the magazine, which is just such a like crazy oversight when you when you think about it. Well, um, there's Polly, mm-hmm. and who, there's who I don't yeah. who, I, who I refer to as they now. Yeah, there's Polly. Yeah. Who else would it have been? There's um, Dr. Anna Arnold Hedgeman also wrote, but like that was it, right? Which is, you know, kind of astonishing, actually. Um, well, I was going to say, because I was going to mention this Londa Robeson, because she talks about the magazine, Paul Robeson's, you know, wife. Yeah. wife. Mm-hmm. And when they had the interracial gathering, like, why don't she, why wasn't she in there? But when they had, they had an interracial gathering yeah. in 43 at the camp, right? And yep. Mary Church Terrell came and others. Um, Mary McLeod yep. Bethune was supposed to come, but she got sick. But mm-hmm. in the correspondence, Robeson says that I'll come on this train. She tells her when she's going to come. And she's like, she's also like, I got reprints of Address to Intelligent White Southerners, that piece from that yeah. issue was out today. And she's like, I put it around strategically yeah. in, in, I think that she was in D.C. at the time. I put it strategically in places around D.C. for white people to pick up and see. Yeah. So she was even like, you know, even in that way. But yeah, that's interesting. There's only two black women. I I know. I know. Um, Yeah, that is. How how many white women were there? Um, Who wrote for it? Right. Um, A lot, although not as like white men still like wrote the most. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm I'm wondering if that too is. But I think that's an interesting, like representation. Yeah, I'm like, wondering if that's part of the time too. Mm-hmm. 
I can't speak to, I don't know, but that's, that's a really yeah. fascinating thing. Cause, cause I'm thinking about things like, um, you know, on Lane Locks, the, um, and mm-hmm. they saw the Harlem Renaissance books, like the new Negro, yeah, you know, the crisis and things like that. I don't know the, the breakdowns of, of right. those. Yeah. And those are like a decade before. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't yeah. know. But but going anyway, back, this is interesting. Yeah, you mentioned too that um, sorry, it seemed <laughs> it seemed to be focused on local kind of change, and the immediate thing I thought about there was this is this is the civil rights movement. I, I'm not going to say it that way, but it's pre what we consider the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. So they are part of a large network of, of groups and organizations like Phylon and the crisis and all these yeah. other kind of magazines that are laying the seeds for the civil rights movement 54 and beyond. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So I, yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can say anything about or any thoughts about that. Cause the, the journal stopped in 45. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's like definitely a really interesting example of sort of like pre pre-civil rights or just civil rights organizing yeah um and i guess like this is kind of where like they're so connected not just to also like other periodicals like this but also like actual movements and actually very real direct actions right because Um, she's involved with the is it the southern southern leadership conference isn't it that's that's southern conference of human welfare right and then she falls out with them right and that's the guy who started the highlander center right so she's she's involved with it she's on those boards absolutely um, all of this stuff and that and the southern that one is actually during this period yeah yeah and then she breaks with them because because she she breaks with them interestingly enough because she says there's not representation on there not maybe it's just women or racial representation but also because they thought they were she thought they were too gradual yeah Mm -hmm. yeah and i think they were kind of more of a mix of people who yes some were more moderate and some were more radical but um yeah i think to that same conference actually that's kind of why she was really interested in in having like the interracial house parties like we always think of 19 1943 because it was like an opportunity for women to really talk with each other yeah i mean Um, they were there for the weekend one of the letters said that they mm -hmm. went swimming in that pool in september and i was like (laughs) <laughs> okay that, that, that's not a heated pool it's it's fed by mountain springs i was like okay right <laughs> y'all have, y'all have that. i think i think that that party in 43 she did more but that's the one i have information about yeah um, i mean I, they had there needs right? to be more work on that because i think that yeah, is a very is. important thing and nothing's left except for the correspondence of i'm coming on this here's the invitation all this and i think part of the reason yeah. for that is she wrote to Mary Church Terrell's secretary, if you go to the Library of Congress stuff, Mary Church mm-hmm. Terrell stuff is there and you can find these letters, um, but wrote to Lillian and basically said, can we mention that this happened, that we did this, mm-hmm. right? And then Paula oh. wrote Paula wrote back. So Paula, of course, served as secretary to her administrative assistant and then wrote back. Yeah. I was like, please don't, you know, let people know, oh, don't let no. it get out. Oh, fascinating. So okay. they were very, I think, secretive or protective of that space too yeah because it is it's a mile outside of downtown right and there yeah. was a there was there was a white woman who responded i don't remember who it was who responded and said i'll come 
this is the train I'm coming on, but I cannot let anybody see me because I have family there. And if they, if they know why yeah. I'm coming, they'll, you know, say something. I think that's Dorothy Tilly. Yeah, maybe. And, and I think this is yeah. why we don't know if King ever made it up there. Okay. Because, because Martin Luther King wrote to, this is in the papers too. Martin Luther King wrote to her and said that Coretta and I are just getting back from wherever we want to come see you before the fall. Mm. And okay. if they came up there, there's no record. Okay. And yeah. which is not shocking, but it's. No. Yeah. That space is interesting. It is. It is because it's kind of secluded, but also yeah, it's it's up <laughs> on top of the mountain. I mean, you got you got to yeah, trek the up transport. there. Mm-hmm. So, but but the people the people they were having up there, I think those people came partly from the journal and people reading the journal, the people they yeah. had in there, and that's what started. That's why I kind of asked you earlier, or I mentioned, how do you see this as transforming her trajectory, or do you see it as that? Right, and Paula. Yeah. I mean, she's doing the camp at this time, too. Yeah, right. I mean, I feel like this was hugely important in sort of her like political development. Um, You know, she, I mean, she has such growth in her ideas. I guess that's where I was going earlier with that, too. Um, You know, like from her early writings in Pseudopodia to South Today, I mean, she becomes so much more radical, I feel. Um, And I feel like she really. you know, through, yeah, listening to other people and writing herself and figuring out where she stands on things. Um, Yeah, you know, the magazine was hugely important. I feel like, though, like, so many things were also happening at this time. Like, the parties were happening since 1936 when the magazine started. Um, So, of course, they were were meeting with people kind of right from the beginning of that. And then um, there's also all sorts of events that are going on, like, kind of on the outside of the magazine as well. So like one thing I kind of discuss in the thesis is the formation of the Rabin County maternity home. Right. Um, and so she's, you know, working with local activists as well during this period. Does um, Fra- to, is like, Frank you know, involved with that? Yes, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Lil- Lillian and Frank and um, I believe if his name, James Allen Green, Dr. James Allen know. Green and it- Joe Kinman Brewer. Yeah. So like they're very involved also with like local activism um, and uh, and sort of direct action and then how that kind of feeds back into the magazine, right? So do you there's talk a sort about, of loop in them. Do you talk the about t- them um, forming the library too? Because her and Frank formed the, formed the Raven County Library. It started out as a room in his law office. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't talk about it much, but I think that's fascinating, right? Yeah, and, and there's then, a there's you know, a the bookmobile. Too. Yeah, there, there's a picture if you go to the library in Raven County, in Clayton. There's a picture of her and Frank standing there next to the bookmobile, mm-hmm. and that yeah. library in that county started from, of course, mm-hmm. them. And of course, he's very much involved in mental yeah. health. He's very much involved in the local. I mean, he lived to yeah. be 102, I think, or something like yeah, that. Well. He, he, he was he was up there, but. And he was writing about he was writing to the president about nuclear disarmament and all this stuff during the cold. I mean, very much yeah. involved. That's what I'm saying. It's not just her. No. Yeah. It'd be great to do something on the family. Yeah. Right. She, she's the one who became, quote unquote, famous. Right. But mm-hmm. they're they are very much involved within this kind of thing. And one thing you you said that really stuck out to me, maybe we can start to end here. Mm-hmm. You said that. 
you see her changing and you can see her changing, but you said she was listening to people, mm -hmm. listening to other yeah. people. So I guess really my question is, how, how do you see her as listening to other people? And why is that mm -hmm. extremely important, especially as a white activist? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I see her listening to people through things like other contributors, through, you know, the readers who are writing in, um, through her, you know, connections to local activists and also, you know, more national activists. Um, but I think, you know, yeah, like it's very important her, you know, the part, the interracial party was like an opportunity to really listen and to kind of talk across their differences and, and, um, you know, understand, um, you know, they're coming from different perspectives, but like also how they can work together, white and black women, I mean. Um, so I think, you know, that is a hugely important thing, I, you know, that maybe often doesn't happen enough in, you know, uh, some like white activist circles. Um, so I guess I kind of see the magazine as being like a huge facilitator of like how she was able to connect with people and listen. Um, yeah, I, to well I totally, yeah. I totally agree because th there's two parts to that. One it is the direct listening because she did say that those interracial meetings, and she writes about this in Killers of the Dream. I I'm assuming this is one of those gatherings that people were uncomfortable, black and white right. women were uncomfortable. Right. And they, and she talks about the one white woman who was like felt nauseous, even though she knew what she was doing was right. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then the black woman who didn't feel nauseous, but also had apprehensions. Right. Right. So, mm -hmm. but, but the listening is important because as you said, and I'm a white guy, I don't experience even the things you experience as a, as a woman. Right. Mm -hmm me listening to what you've experienced or gone through, just like me listening to somebody else. And part of that is actually mm -hmm. reading too, because that's one of the things right. she mentions in a, the things that she mentions and address to white Southerners and throughout are the same things we hear today is read books by black authors. She's like, this is what you can do. Yeah. You can learn mm -hmm. and, and listen, that's one way to listen. Right. Cause I think mm -hmm. to Ernest Gaines and Ernest Gaines, whenever somebody asked him, how do you become a better writer? He said there's right. six words. Do you know what the six words are? No, I've never heard this. Read, 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 and write, write, write. <laughs> because you're in conversation, yeah. right? And to write and to think, you have to listen. And reading is part of that listening. Yeah. So I think that's extremely important. Incredible. Now, when yeah. you're talking about the maternity hospital and everything, I haven't had a chance to read your thesis yet, but now I have to read it because that I think is very important and fascinating. Like I said, because he worked with the community and yeah. that community activism is is one of the things that I want to learn more about. And I, mm -hmm. we need more about Paula. We do. We need more yeah. about Frank. We need more about the people who worked connected with her, about Moselle who was, who was mm -hmm. a cook at the camp, right? Yeah. About Harley, who I think served yeah. during the war, maybe, maybe not served the war, but, but he was the maintenance person at the camp about okay. Bill's family who he's the maintenance person now. And his dad worked for Lil. There's a picture in the, of them on the roof, like putting like straw or whatever on the, I mean, it's not just her. It is not mentioned with other people. It is mm -hmm. a community. And even after she died, the yeah. fact that Paula stayed up there, the fact mm -hmm. that Frank had a house up there 
and then he moved, I think, into town. Mm-hmm. Esther lived up there. Anna Lori and then Anna Lori's daughter lived up there. Yeah. It's a community of women, too. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's, I think, a very, we have her writing and everything like that, but there's a really kind of important discussion to be had about what that space as a space yeah, for listening, learning, talking, activism, and just living. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. for. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where they did the magazine. Yeah. So, a mountain yeah, in Northeast Georgia, 90 minutes away from Atlanta. <laughs> rural is all rural could be at that time, right? Yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> so is there any, is there anything, leave us with this. What is one piece or two pieces from the journal that people should go read? Oh, um, I think I have to mention buying a new world with old Confederate bills. Um, that's just one of my favorites. Um, oh, this is so tough. <laughs> There's so many possibilities. Well, I I agree with that one. That's that one. one I always go to. Okay. Is, is, is there anything you can think of from Paula that they should read? Um, a book review or anything? I mean, she reviews Absalom Absalom. I think she does. She reviews Arguing? the Wild Palms. Yeah. Um. I think her uh, profile, I believe, of Evelyn Scott. Which I haven't read. I know it's there, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which is also kind of interesting, I guess. Like, uh, you know. Okay. So I'll put those. I'll put those in the. I'll put a link to those in the description for people to. All right. (laughs) So thank you for spending time with us. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about living at East Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.